What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you live from home. And uh, this from the Los Angeles Times. Despite mounting pleas from California and other states, the Trump administration is not allowing states to use Medicaid more freely to respond to the coronavirus crisis by expanding medical services. In previous emergencies, including the 9-11 terrorist attacks, Hurricane Katrina, and the H1N1 flu outbreak, both Republican and Democratic administrations loosened Medicaid rules to empower states to meet surging needs. But today, the White House and senior federal health officials have not taken the necessary steps to give states simple pathways to fully leverage this mammoth safety net program. This is amazing. Cindy Mann, who oversaw the Medicaid program in the Obama administration, worked with the states to help respond to the H1N1 flu crisis in 2009, said if they wanted to do it, they could do it, but they haven't. And, you know, we'll see. I just wanted to bring you up to date on some of the news stories here, and then I'll, I'll be taking your calls for the rest of the show. Uh, public citizen Robert Weissman, who was on our program a couple days ago, the president of Public Citizen, Citizen.org. Uh, he's the president of Public Citizen, and he has come out and explicitly called for Donald Trump to uh, stand down, to step down, turn the government over to Mike Pence. Time to leave office. And Paul Krugman is saying the same thing. This is uh, remarkable. Kirsten Gillibrand went after the Trump payroll tax deduction. You know, Trump tweeted, the solution to this is, I'm paraphrasing from memory here, Basically, what we need to do, or if we want to solve this problem right now, is we need to uh, eliminate the Social Security tax. Of course, that would eliminate Social Security eventually, but you understand. So anyhow, what she says in response to, he said, well, here's, here's actually what Trump said, and I quote, this is his tweet. If you want to get money into the hands of people quickly and efficiently, let them have the full money that they earned. Approve the payroll tax cut until the end of the year, December 31. Then you're doing something that's re- really meaningful. Only that will make a difference. And so Gillibrand uh, Kristen Gillibrand, senator from New York, says, So again, President Trump is disconnected from the American people and their realities. Again, the example you gave, a single mom, primary sole wage earner, gets a notice that the, child, the children have to stay home. Her payroll, her getting a payroll tax deduction isn't going to help her if she's losing her job. That's the point. You need a national paid leave in that example. She said if a worker is sick, getting more money out of their paycheck isn't going to help. If they're spreading coronavirus to the people they're working with at work when they're sick... They need to stay home. So the solutions that we've offered are the most common sense and important and economically solvent. But, of course, the solutions the Democrats are proposing ain't happening. From our European correspondent, here's what's happening around the world. This is from Nigel, our webmaster. He lives in the U.K., one of our two webmasters. In England, the Major League Football stopped by football authorities. Scotland, all football at any level stopped by the Scottish government. In Europe, the European Football League has been stopped. Czech Republic banning entry to the country for all but their own uh, residents which, by, by the way, violates the rules of the EU. Slovakia, same thing. Uh, Austria, all shops to close starting on Monday, except some cafes and food shops. Spain, the British people are being advised not to visit parts of Spain unless urgent. France has banned public gatherings of more than 100 people for any reason. Germany is offering unlimited loans to businesses with no upper limit. And uh, Nigel adds, in the U.K., the government have not required large meetings of people to be banned, but sports of several sorts are taking the action themselves. 
politically in the UK, the media has started to turn against the Boris Johnson conservative government the past few hours, asking why there is no formal ban on schools being opened or ban on large gatherings. Argentina has banned flights from all European countries, from the US, China, Iran, Japan, and South Korea, and Peru and, and Paraguay have suspended all flights to and from Europe and Asia. And uh, Aaron Carroll writes a, an extraordinary piece in today's New York Times, the biggest thing to worry about with the coronavirus, and basically the bottom line is that we, he said we have 45,000 intensive care beds in the United States, ICU beds in the United States, 45,000. You know, most of those are in use right now anyway. But he says in the, in the case of a moderate outbreak, we would need 200,000 of these beds. He says hospitals don't survive financially in the United States by keeping open beds and equipment idle. And uh, he said, in, talking about ventilators, for example, in a, if a pandemic more closely followed the model of Spanish flu outbreak, we would need more than 740,000 ventilators. Uh, we have some uh, 30 or 40,000. The tale is cautionary. He says in Italy, more than 12,000 people have been infected, more than 800 have died, a little over 1,000 have recovered. Many of the rest are still ill, and a significant number need to be hospitalized. South Korea has flattened its curve by engaging in extreme testing and social distancing. They set up drive-through screening stations. As of Sunday, 190,000 people there had been tested for the virus. And I got, I got, Fred got an email from Donald Trump. Wouldn't you love to have dinner with Donald Trump? I mean, you, know, <laughs> you could shake his hand, right? Fred, I have a very important dinner coming up, and I'm inviting you to enter for the chance to be my special VIP guest. By the way, Jed Luggum followed up on these. They haven't been able to find anybody who's actually had a dinner with Trump. They get flown to, to someplace for some dinner, but Trump doesn't show up. Anyhow, he says, I'm only offering this opportunity to my top supporters like you, Fred, because I really want to do something nice to show you how, just how much you mean to me. If you win, you'll get to bring a guest of your choice to share the experience, and we'll even get to take a photo together so we might remember the night forever. Please contribute $42 in the, in the next hour to win your chance, blah de blah And then the, there's this whole box of small print down at the bottom, which says, Contributing or sending a text message will not improve your chances of winning. Voidware prohibited. By sending a text message from your mobile phone, you are providing your written consent to receive calls and SMS, MMS messages, including auto-dialed and automated calls and texts to that number from each of the participating committees in the Trump Make America Great Again Committee, Donald J. Trump for President, Inc., and the Republican National Committee. And consent is not required as a condition of entry. <laughs> this is like in six-point type. It's really, really hard to read. So uh, this is... You know, it just, oh, and, and finally, the super rich are jetting off to disaster bunkers, this in The Guardian, amid coronavirus outbreaks. Incredible. Just incredible. Anyhow, Jeff in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? Um, thanks for taking my call. And let, let me just say, in these surreal and unsettling times, you and this show uh, remain a steady voice of reason and sanity that's much needed. So thank you and to everyone uh, involved with the show. Um, for sure. Having said that, I do have a slight disagreement with the uh, followed by a question. Um, earlier in the week, you were asserting that no matter how the Democratic Party ends up, the primary ends up, you believe Bernie and his ideas have already won. And I, I agree that it's truly incredible how much Bernie has mainstreamed and brought mass acceptance to Medicare for All, Green New Deal, et cetera. But personally, Tom, I don't think we can declare victory unless A, Bernie wins, or B, if he doesn't win, we at least get a true progressive as Biden's running mate. Therefore, in my opinion, we need Bernie to keep going full speed. And I refer you to 2008 when I believe Hillary didn't concede until, uh, to Obama until the month of May. Um, and we still won in a landslide. It, that year. So my question to you, Tom, if Bernie knocks it out of the park on Sunday with the debate, do you think he could possibly start garnering uh, endorsements from like prominent progressives like Stacey Abrams, Andrew Gillum, not to mention Elizabeth Warren? It's kind of frustrating, I think, to a lot of progressives that we haven't coalesced like the centrists have. Yeah. I, a, Jeff, I think that the uh, value and, uh, of uh, endorsements, uh, with a few exceptions, is way overstated. Um, obviously, uh, Jim Clyburn's endorsement of Joe Biden uh, did it in South Carolina for Joe, and that. And, and, and what about Beto in, in Texas, too? 
It may it, it may well yeah. have, you know turn out to yeah. to to have worked very well in Texas for Joe Biden, yeah. um, but yeah. you know endorse setting endorsements aside, I, I think if Bernie knocks it out of the park, or probably more likely, um, uh, if if Joe basically blows it, um, then yeah. then uh, you know it's 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 uh, we will know the results on Wednesday because on Tuesday there's a whole bunch of other state having elections. So we'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman program. For the Tom Hartman book club today, we're reading from Monica L. Smith's book, Cities, the first 6,000 years. This is from chapter one titled Why Cities. As an archaeologist, my favorite place in Rome is not the Colosseum or the Forum. It's the ancient trash dump of Monte Testacio. Right in the middle of the city, it's a giant mound of broken pottery where the ancient Romans threw away the containers used to ship wine and olive oil all over the Mediterranean. Each of those vessels was about half the height of a person and made of coarse clay that would have roughed up a stevedore's hands. Their odd shape of two handles and a pointy base made them good for packing into a ship's hold or standing upright on a sandy shoreline, but very inconvenient for anything else. After a cargo of them arrived at its destination on the hustling shores of the Tiber, at the very heart of the Roman world, a few were reused and a few were recycled. Over the centuries, the pile of discards grew, with the result that one of the famous hills of Rome is actually not a hill at all, but of human construction, a landfill, essentially. Today, Monte Testacio is topped by trendy nightclubs, and has been endlessly mined for construction, but there are still the remains of 25 million ancient containers poking up from the vegetation of the hillside. Now consider a very different metropolis, my favorite part of Tokyo, the backside of the Shukiji fish market, that part that tourists don't visit. Shukiji is enormous, and the passageways are crowded with plastic buckets and barrels, teeming with every kind of creature that you can imagine from the briny deep. Crabs attempt to crawl their way out of baskets. Little fish are piled up in ice buckets. And great slabs of tuna glisten under the Klieg lights. The market is open to everyone, with chefs and restaurant owners jostling with homemakers for a clearer view of the day's catch. It's a world without friendly chit-chat, punctuated by the dangerous darting movements of souped-up forklifts that dodge their way in and out of the buildings and heap up their discards out back. Behind the market is an enormous dump of plastic foam shipping boxes used to transport the globally sourced tuna, squid, and shrimp from each morning's auctions. The pile of containers is taller than a two-story building and so large that it is continually cleared by bulldozer. Some of the cartons are trampled and broken in the process with bits and pieces that spill further into the passageway. In between the endless runs of machinery, merchants and their helpers come to pick through the heaps of box fragments, sorting through the pile to find ones that aren't too broken. They carry them off to repack with fish or whatever else they're selling. Ancient Rome and modern Tokyo are literally a world apart, but if we stand back and look at them as cities, they have identical characteristics. In addition to markets and trash, there are multi-story buildings, long streets, sewer pipes, water mains, public squares, and a downtown zone of financial institutions and government offices. There are a thousand varieties of sounds and smells competing with the weather and daylight that frame the skyline in the built environment. There are crowds of people, rich, poor, young, old, female, male, gay, straight, trans, able, disabled, employed, students, jobless, residents, and visitors. Production and consumption opportunities are scaled up in cities to provide not only more things, but also more things per person, a completely ironic abundance given that urban residences tend to be much smaller than their rural counterparts. In the midst of so much abundance, the only solution is to cycle through possessions faster, turning everything into trash. It's the act of discard that provides the most telling evidence of urban activity, whether it's a broken potsherd from 2,000 years ago or a fragment of a plastic crate that was shattered this morning. Once you start to look for the concentrated detrius of your own urban life, it's everywhere. In the trash cans that bear the proud logo of the downtown business improvement district, in the dumpster parked outside a building that signals the renovation uh, taking place inside, in the garbage truck that obstructs your commute, in the legions of sanitation workers employed to sweep the streets and subways and haul out the accumulations of discards. 
Trash has a familiar rhythm and concentration. Holidays bring a hangover of extra full trash bins. Parades and festivals and summer weekends in the park are witnessed through their aftermath of overflowing trash containers. Whether directly or by proxy, an urban obsession with trash is everywhere, and once you start to look, you won't be able to stop seeing it. Congratulations, you're an archaeologist. Move your gaze upward or to the side, you might notice it's not just trash that silently tells the story of urban life. Your own metropolis, even if it's new, has many traces that reveal its history before you moved through the streets. Its streets. Maybe it's a bolt hole in the sidewalk where a telephone booth used to stand, or an out-of-use railroad track now embedded in the asphalt of the city street. Maybe it's a building that has been updated once or twice, resulting in the pastiche of a Victorian facade with mirrored glass windows, or a modernist concrete structure fronted by flowers and cheerful painted windowsills. And maybe it's a newly cut ditch in the street where you can see the layered pavements of prior years right up to the present. Buildings and streets and parks serve as a living map of variable time, a collection of structures that all exist simultaneously, whether they were constructed a millennium ago, in your grandparents' time, or just last week. Your growing archaeological insights serve you well when looking not only at modern cities, but also at the ancient cities that are found by the hundreds on nearly every continent. Such famous ones such as Rome, to not-so-famous ones with romantic names like Tikal, Telbrock, and Expian. The book Cities, the First 6,000 Years by Monica L. Smith. Claire in Fort Worth, Texas, watching Free Speech TV. Hey, Claire, what's up? Good morning. I uh, wanted to comment on the person that called about the elections in Fort Worth and, and Dallas and okay. some of the comments that he made. Uh, first of all, I was at all of the meetings in Tarrant County, which is Fort Worth, where these decisions were made, and it's a long and complex process. But basically, each county made its own decision, irrespective of what any national party or state party wanted to do. Each county bought its own machines. Each county's commissioner's court voted on whether or not to adopt voting centers and to get the new machines. There were no decisions made to rearrange uh, the locations of voting in Tarrant County. We did not move any precincts that weren't already combined. Uh, with 235 precincts, we had 196 open. Uh, the biggest problem we had was that the two uh, executive committees of the two parties each voted separately to not combine machinery at our primary locations. Uh, the actual voting machines are not party dependent. So that could have been done. And both of them did, each for different reasons, but that's why. And I don't know what Dallas what were their did. Reasons? Uh, mostly the Republicans didn't want to work with us, and the Democrats didn't want to uh, deal with how quite often they are treated by hmm. the other party. So none of this was being motivated by a desire to have fewer votes available in, in areas where there were a lot of students that might go out for Bernie? Uh, no. We had uh, 10 days of early voting at several of our universities and a rotating booth that, that went around to our community college. And we had uh, uh, our, our party management is very cognizant of what goes on in minority communities. And the tiniest little voting centers remained open. We're not making any yeah. changes here until so, after the so 2020. Claire, do you know anything about missing missing cards with memory cards with votes votes on them? Our memory cards are not used until the machines get to the voting area. And actually, right. my experience in training was that the memory cards just came on to clear the machines for the next training class. The voting machines themselves do not hold data, just the scanner. And those papers are boxed up and sealed before they leave the polls and go to okay. the elections office, which is not run by either party. Okay. So I don't know, like I said, I don't know about Dallas. Uh, yeah. No, on the state government, it's uh, in Tarrant County. Each county has its own elections commission. commission and uh, ours is hired. They're not appointed. Mm -hmm. So um, there you go. Anything else you yeah. want to ask that I didn't think no, of? No, I, I think you've been fairly comprehensive. 
And uh, yeah, you know, I'm well, glad to hear that yeah. if there were if there were screw ups, yeah. they were the old fashioned variety. And yeah, it was you know things like the Republicans got more machines than the Democrats did, and the Democrats turned out where they normally don't. And that's pretty much it because we're in a split building, half on one side, half on the other. So it won't happen in November because we won't have that arrangement. There you go. Okay, good. That's good to know, too. Claire, thank you very much. Thanks for the call. I appreciate the information. And we'll be back with your calls on the Our one-hour free podcast recaps our show, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are found. And we have the full three-hour podcast available over at TomHartman.com if you want to really support our program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Just a couple of quick things. Uh, the first is that this is the quote from NPR day before yesterday. In the case of Alex Azar, he did go to the president in January. He did push, this is a guest on NPR, he did push past resistance from the president's political aides to warn the president the new coronavirus would be a major problem. There were aides around Trump. Kellyanne Conway had some skepticism at times, and this is something that needed to be a presidential priority. But at the same time, Secretary Azar was not, has not always given the president the worst case scenario of what could happen. My understanding is that Trump did not push to do aggressive additional testing in recent weeks, and that's partly because more testing might have led to more cases being discovered of coronavirus outbreak, and the president had made clear the lower the numbers on coronavirus, the better for the president, the better for his potential re-election this fall. Mind-boggling, number one. And secondly, Trump tweeted out that President Obama screwed up the response to the H1N1 flu virus and that and if you go to the fact checker I, Trump just tweeted out a blatant lie about Obama Louise and I were in the room at the Correspondence Association dinner we were probably 100 100 feet from Donald Trump and his party when Barack Obama President Obama from the dais looked down at Trump and made fun of him for 10 minutes and Trump looked like he had steam coming out of his ears. He had his arms crossed over his chest and there was just hate on his face. And the people around him looked terrified. And I really believe that a lot of what he's doing to this day, and the reason why he's trash talking Obama is that he's still PO'd about that. He's still angry about that, that he hates Obama because Obama made fun of him. And, you know, of course, also he didn't, he never accepted Obama even as a legitimate president, you know, America's first black president. So anyway, Jim in Salisbury, uh, North Carolina. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. My question has to do with the uh, the president's going to declare this, believes he's going to declare a national emergency. And that will mm -hmm. kind of activate the Stafford Act for Disaster Relief and Emergency Assistance, FEMA. They'll get in. My question is, do you think, and I can he, I guess, I believe he will, but can he, by declaring this national emergency a few weeks or months down the road, suspend the general elections in November? Because no. we, don't, we won't he have can't. a cure until a year. Cannot do it. Right. That's, he cannot do that. That's good. Um, this is, I had asked, uh, in fact, I should have asked him about this on the air because we've been corresponding an email about it. Two weeks ago and last week on the air, I asked Congressman Pocan if that was a possibility. And he had his staff uh, talk with the Congressional Research Service, which is this arm. Uh, it's not even an arm of Congress. It's an independent agency that answers exclusively to Congress. I can't and you can't ask the, the CRS to research any issue, but a member of Congress can ask them to research anything. You know, what was the first day of a coronavirus infection in China? You know, does the president have the authority to suspend elections? Whatever it may be. He asked the CRS this. They gave him an answer. He shared that answer with me in email, which he can legally do. I'm not sure if he can publish them or not. And the answer was no. But they qualified it. The Congressional Research Service said Congress could, under the Constitution, pass legislation to give the president that power. And, but at the moment, the president does not have that power. It would require uh, an act of Congress. So, Jim, thanks a lot for the call. I hope, hope that answers your question. Ruth in Seattle. Hey, Ruth, what's up? Hey, hi. I'm sick here in Seattle with COVID, not been tested. But how know, do you know it's COVID? Uh, how do I know? Symptoms mostly. But or what secondly, makes you think? a nurse, a friend of mine who is a hospice nurse in the Kirkland area, 
very close to me who I've had contact with also has symptoms. There are no tests here. So nobody can say in Seattle, maybe not nobody, very, very, very few people can say, I have COVID. And so, so you have a dry what, cough, a non, you're not producing mucus, and you have fever that is high or comes and goes? Is that? Oh, I can tell symptoms? you how, how the, because I'm in getting in, I'm in my second week now of this. It started oh. with swollen glands in my throat, kind of a sore throat, came and go, kind of, you know, the kind of thing like, mm, feel a little run down, I'll have a cup mm-hmm. of tea, and then you're fine, kind of a thing. And one day I had runny eyes, and then it all goes away. And then it came back with a vengeance just to my chest, just uh, like asthma mm-hmm. and coughing, and then heavy chest, difficulty breathing, that kind of thing. So my point, what I tried to call about is that I believe, well, okay, first of all, when I was having the most difficulty breathing, I went to call my Kaiser hotline, and I was 13th in the queue, and as I was watching the go down the queue, 12th, it was taking about 15 to 20 minutes for each one. So with 13 people there, that's hours. Right. So, okay. so, um, so, so anyway, so no, the, that's quite what right. I'm we have to say, we have about 45 seconds to the break, Ruth. Did you, okay. did you make so the, the you medical system is collapsed? Okay, yeah, a medical system here in Seattle is collapsing. If people keep calling to get tested when there are no tests. When they're calling for minor uh, feet, when they're calling for their fever or cold or flu symptoms to see if they need a test, it's clogging up the lines for people who are very seriously ill. And if that mm. happens, then they go to the 911 and then 911 gets clogged up and we're going to have four hour waits on the 911 when 911 says can you hold please you know you're the 14th so if you're not seriously seriously ill don't interact with the system and if you are seriously but do stay away from everybody socially isolate and if you are seriously ill bandana mask anything you can do to cover everyone needs to be covered everyone needs to be covered Ruth, thank you. Thank you very much for the call. I wish you the very best and, and you know, call back uh, next week and let us know how you're feeling. It's fascinating. We're, we're going to start hearing stories from people who have been confirmed, and yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us by Rachel Louise Snyder. I'm reading from the preface, page four. Suzanne and I exchanged small talk on her brother's driveway that day in 2010. She and the family were still in preparation and packing mode for their annual camping vacation into the hinterlands of Maine. And Suzanne had been greeted by her brother Andre with a long shopping list. She told me she worked for a domestic violence agency in town and that they had recently developed a new program that she was calling the Domestic Violence High Risk Team. Their primary aim was simple, she said. We try to predict domestic violence homicides before they happen so we can prevent them. It sounded immediately implausible. So implausible, in fact, that I thought I'd misheard some elemental piece of it. Predict, I remember saying? You said predict domestic violence homicides? I had come across domestic violence in my reporting over the years, not only in Cambodia, but also in places like Afghanistan, Niger, and Honduras. But it had never been a focus for me. Instead, it was always adjacent to whatever other story I was writing, so much so that it was practically banal. The young girls jailed for love crimes in Kabul, the Indian child brides who gave interviews only in front of the men who controlled them, the Tibetan women forcibly sterilized by the Chinese government, the teenage brides in Niger cast from their villages after post-pregnancy fistulas made them pariahs, the Romanian women forced to birth multiple children under Ceausescu and who now in their early 30s were grandmothers fated to poverty, the Cambodian street workers beaten and gang-raped for weekend sport by well-heeled Khmer teenagers. All of these women in every country were brutalized and controlled by men as a matter of routine. Men made the rules, primarily through physical violence. It was there lurking in practically every story I'd ever covered around the world, a shadowy background so obvious I didn't even have have to ask about it most of the time. It was as common as rain. Until that moment in the driveway with Suzanne Dubas, if I thought of domestic violence in the United States at all, I saw it as an unfortunate fate for the unlucky few, a matter of bad choices and cruel environments. A woman hardwired to be hurt, a man hardwired to hurt, 
but I never envisioned it as a social ill, an epidemic we can actually do something about. Now here was Susan Dubas talking about preventative measures for a type of violence that, for the first time, I saw operating along a continuum. The young girl in India married as a child, the Tibetan woman sterilized, the Afghan woman jailed, the housewife in Massachusetts brutalized by her husband. They all shared a common privation, what domestic violence victims across the world lacked, agency in their own lives. The forces that brought a Cambodian prostitute to the brink of death were the same forces that killed thousands of women and children and men, but mostly women and children, across America and the entire globe every year. An average, in fact, of 137 women each and every day are killed by intimate partner or familial violence across the globe. And this does not include men or children. Everything in my body suddenly came alive that day. I saw all the faces of women around the world from over two decades of work, and I realized how rarely I'd gazed inward at my own country, at what we got wrong and what it meant. The universality of domestic violence and how it crisscrosses geographical, cultural, and linguistic barriers. Maybe all those other stories were in preparation for the day that I'd meet Paul Monson and look at the mountains from his living room windows. I ended up following Suzanne to the farmer's market and then to the grocery store and then to the liquor store as she prepped for her camping trip. I helped her carry ice and peaches and hamburger meat. I asked question after question while she drove and while her mother Pat sat in the passenger seat chiming in here and there. How did it work? How many have you stopped? What else can you predict? My questions were vast and endless. Like many people who hold a casual acquaintance with a problem, I believed all the common assumptions. That if things were bad enough, victims would just leave. That restraining orders solved the problem. And that if a victim didn't show up to renew a restraining order, the problem had been solved. That going to a shelter was an adequate response for victims and their children. That violence inside the home was something private, unrelated to other forms of violence perhaps most notably mass shootings. The lack of visible injury signaled a lack of seriousness. And perhaps most of all, that unless we stand at the receiving end of a punch, such violence had nothing to do with us at all. Over the next few years, Suzanne Dubas and her colleague Kelly Dunn patiently taught me about the scope and history of an issue that still today is too often hidden. I learned why past approaches had failed and what we could do more effectively today. Between 2000 and 2006, 3,200 American soldiers were killed. During that same period, domestic homicide in the United States claimed 10,600 lives. This figure is likely an underestimate as it was pulled from the FBI's supplementary homicide reports, which gathered data from local police departments and participation is voluntary. 20 people in the United States are assaulted every minute by their partners. Former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan called violence against women and girls the most shameful human rights violation. And the World Health Organization called it a global health problem of epidemic proportions. A study put out by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime cited 50,000 women around the world were killed by partners or family members in 2017 alone. 50,000 women. The UNODC report called home the most dangerous place for women. The book, No Visible Bruises, by Rachel Louise Snyder. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, with two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on the science revolution this week, first, Trump is using the same logic on COVID-19 that he used for pesticides and pollution. And I'll explain why that's not a good thing. Nile Marian, Forestry and Biodiversity Framework Coordinator with Friends of the Earth International, is here. Can we stop mass extinctions? Eva Hamer, Legal Coordinator of Direct Action Everywhere, drops by on her article, Why I Went Topless at Costco. Plus, geeky science. This is what happens when public transit is free. But wait, there's more. in to the science revolution wherever fine podcasts are found. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman program. I just got a note from a listener. It's unusual, frankly, that emails about the show and things get through to me because our my spam filter, you know, if, if any political words are in, e- in an email and the person's not on my list, they they just I, I don't I never see them. But this one this one got through. He says, today you said Trump lied about production of coronavirus kits, two major labs in, in the U.S., etc. And he said, I'd like to suggest you make an archive of articles you talk about on the show. Sometimes I'd like to follow up. It exists every single day. And, and to, you know, Wes, uh, Wesley, this is my response to you and to, to anybody else who might ask, you know, that or a similar question. And that is that every day Sue Nethercutt puts together, and you can follow her on Twitter as well, by the way, she puts together a list of every single story I've talked about, and it's called Sue's Daily Stack. And we have an email newsletter that goes out to tens of thousands of people every single day. And it's got some, you know, some little ads that run down the side that, that basically subsidize it. And uh, it's free. And we don't share the list with anybody. We don't sell the list. It's entirely in-house and proprietary. Uh, you'll never get anything else in the mail from us. And it has my daily take on it, which we usually post on Facebook. And then it has Sue's stack. And sometimes there's other good content in that newsletter. So uh, you just go over to TomHartman.com and subscribe to it. Like I said, there's no cost. There's no charge. You'll never get hassled. All you'll do is get a daily newsletter. And it will have, and, and the stack includes hyperlinks to every single thing I talk about in every single show. So if you have any questions or want to know what's going on, uh, that's how you do it. So, Dennis in Bergenfield, New Jersey. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind today? 
Hey, Tom, I have a question about taxes, uh, as usual. Um, so on the left, I always hear that, you know, there's a social contract or that, you know, we benefit from the government services, which means taxation is not theft, and no, which means that nobody earns anything in isolation because somehow or another they use the infrastructure of the government and that, you know, if, even if we invest in education, we'll get some money back, a surplus in taxes. For every dollar we spend, we get more in taxes. But, you know, my question to you is, how do you? What's the best argument to convince you know conservatives like me? Because I get it, but a lot of I feel like a lot of conservatives who are different don't understand it. So how would you convince them out of those arguments? I think you I think you just summarized it well. I mean, you know, a, a real simple way to say it would be, we are all members of society. Society, if we didn't have a cultural, intellectual, educational, and physical infrastructure, which cannot be provided by private industry and private, you know, private industry is not going to build our roads. It's not going to provide us with police and fire. It's been tried. We've, you know, toll roads and things, I mean, on a, on a local basis, you can find examples of it that go back to the 1600s in the United States. And they almost always ended up in local wars happening when, you know, some landowner would say, you know, that road going through my land, I'm going to put a toll station there. Back in the 1400s or in the, in the 900s in Europe, you know, they build castles at those sites to collect tolls because they had to fight armies regularly. So all this infrastructure, all this stuff, you know, has a cost associated with it. And that's why, to paraphrase the Declaration of Independence, governments are created among men and women, people, to provide for that infrastructure. We're all in this together. None of us can exist independent of all the rest of us. We're social animals and, and we need each other to survive and live. You know, so how do we pay for that? Well, by taxing either income or wealth or both. And in the United States, we tax both. We tax the wealth of average people through property taxes, although we don't tax the property of wealthy people unless it happens to be land. So they very smartly don't put their money in land, they put it in stocks. And we tax income and progressive income tax. The, you know, the more you make, the more you pay, because the more heavily you're using the resources of society. Isn't that straightforward, Dennis? Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. The other thing I would say is... Uh, I mean, I don't know another way to do it. I guess the, I guess the yeah. thing to do would be to flip it around and say, Dennis, as a, a conservative or a libertarian, how would you provide for widespread education, for transportation, for... You wouldn't? Right. Well, no, I'm saying you wouldn't be able to without, without some form of oh. taxation. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Yep. Thank you very much, Dennis. Good to hear from you. Melissa in Ann Arbor. Hey, Melissa, what's on your mind today? Oh, I can't believe I'm talking to you. And let's make this a bunch with Bernie days. Oh, well, thank you for calling. So what's up? I sent you some tweets about the 1918 flu in Akron. I thought okay. every... Okay, I haven't I had an opportunity to look at Twitter yet today. I'm sorry. Uh, you want to yeah, tell me what you sent me? I've known for decades, so I thought everyone knew that mega doses of aspirin was what caused a, a lot of the deaths in the 1918 flu. Oh, I did see I that tweet. You, what you said was that the aspirin was thinning people's blood and it was causing liquids to accumulate in people's lungs and killing them. I, also, it lowers the you know, I didn't fever respond to that because... Go ahead. Also, aspirin lowers fever, so you can't not fighting the infection. But I think it's right. interesting because I hear you say that when the 1918 flu and the fall actually got worse, but that was when the Surgeon General and, and the experts were suggesting the mega doses of the aspirin. So it seems to be correlated mm. that way. There's some controversy about whether this was a huge effect or whether it was a, right. you know, a smaller effect. But no one seemed to well, refute the whole concept. There's, there's, of it. there's two contrasting kind of. Th- or at least my response is two contrasting thoughts. On the one hand, you're right, aspirin and any of the antipyretic drugs, anti-fever drugs, aspirin, ibuprofen, when you lower fever, the fever is the, it's the body's way of activating the, the macrophage, you know, basically the, the cells in the body that fight infection. And so it cranks them up. So if you're lowering the temperature, you're reducing the, the immune response. So, which you would think would be a bad thing if you're trying to fight off, you know, a pathogen like a virus. On the other hand, some people die not from the virus, you know, destroying cells and tissue, and it does because they hijack cells and cause the cells to convert their cytoplasm into and protoplasm into uh, viral DNA. But 
it's not the virus and the destruction of tissue that kills you. It's the immune response to it that kills you. And the fever goes so high that your body shuts down and collapses or systems start collapsing. And in that case, antipyretic drugs are useful and in fact may limit the damage that a disease does. You know, whether, you know, whether or not this, any of this has to do with the flu, I can't speak specifically to. And whether it will with the coronavirus, I have no idea either. It'll be real interesting and probably we won't know for six months or a year, but to look back at what kinds of medications were being used with success in China, which is the largest experiment that we have right now. China uses a lot of herbal medicine. I studied acupuncture in China for a month back in 1988. I lived in Beijing and huge herbal pharmacies. I mean, just absolutely huge herbal pharmacies. And they use a lot of the local version of white willow bark, which is where aspirin you know, came from. Uh, back in colonial days, uh, they would just strip the cambium off the willow, off the white willows, you know, the layer underneath the, the outer bark, and make that into tea. And that was, you know, and it's acetylsalicylic acid. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's basically aspirin. And uh, use that to reduce fevers. So whether they found that that helps coronavirus or not, you know, I, I think it's all fascinating stuff. But Melissa, if you want to tweet me a link to, you know, some specific research, I'd be glad to oh, take I a look sent, at it again. I, I sent several tweets because there, there were several links, but um, I didn't realize. Okay. I had never I'll go back and look at those when I get it. off the air. I never actually researched it. I didn't realize they were using mega doses of aspirin. It was like at least six times our normal dose and even higher. Yeah, so, yeah well, that's, I that's probably heard, not a good thing. With, I've heard for decades not to take aspirin when you have the flu, but I don't necessarily think that like a normal dose would actually have much have that much effect, except for lowering the you know fever, which is necessary to response. get well. So, yeah, I mean, I you know when I feel a cold coming on or the flu coming on, what I do is I try to induce a fever, and uh, you know I'll, I'll take a sauna or a long hot bath. And there's really good research out of Finland, and you can find this online very easily where they found that people who regularly take saunas have uh, lower incidence of colds and flu, shorter incidence of colds and flu, and up to a 25% lower incidence of cancer, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. Although, you know, there is a whole theory around cancer that cancer is the result of persistent inflammation. And if you jack the fever up, you're jacking the immune system and knocking out whatever's causing that long-term low-grade inflammation. Or at least that's one of the theories. But uh, it's, it's something that if you start uh, Googling around or duck-duck going around on this stuff, uh, it can get really, really interesting. Melissa, thank you for the call. It's nice to hear from you. And I'll go back and check out your tweets when I get off the air. Stick around over there. Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. Lori in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Lori, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hi, Don. How are you? I am great Hello? so far. <laughs> so far, so great. good. I'm fine. What's on your mind today, Lori? I, There's a slight delay so because much- uh, I'm remote here. So don't, don't okay. worry about us stepping on each other. Go ahead. I um, recently, my husband had a heart transplant. And speaking of oh. insurance and all the issues that we're having, it's been an incredible journey. He, we literally had to wait after he was approved by the hospital. We had to wait another 16 hours for the insurance company to approve it. Wow. And not only that. Is this in a crisis situation? By the time he properly got diagnosed with, with heart disease, yes. It was a month and a half from the time he properly got diagnosed to the time he had his transplant. He was sent home with cold and flu. Here's antibiotics for a month and a half. And um, But it, it's interesting. If you can't afford the, with our good insurance, well, supposedly what's supposed to be nowadays, good insurance, nationwide company, right. you can't buy the $1,200 a month, my cost of the anti-rejection meds and all the meds after transplant, you don't qualify. Hmm. And if your wow. insurance company doesn't pay for it, you don't qualify. If yeah. um, you don't have somebody that can take six months off work with you, tw- be with you 24-7, you don't qualify. 
That's incredible. See, this is this is why we need a national health care system. This, you know, is, is just straightforward stuff. Lori, thank you for calling and sharing your story. It's nice to hear from you. And I, I, I wish you and your husband the very, very best. Judy in Denver. Hey, Judy, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Hi. Um, first, you can overdose on aspirin. But yeah. The reason I called was that one point five trillion dollars was given by the feds to the bankers over three days. Nobody's talking about it. Well, well this is the reason the why the market went up. Yeah, uh, one of the reasons. But unfortunately, the Democrats think that just giving sick leave, pay for the coronavirus, and unemployment is good enough for us. We don't need any type of bailout other than that. They won't even include paying for the treatment of the coronavirus while they ignore the homeless, the incarcerated, babies being held in our internment camps, and the poor. They don't seem now, to care. Is your indictment of the Democrats for not putting together a piece of legislation that will not survive the Senate, or is your indictment for the, to the Republicans for forcing the Democrats to compromise? Well, the Dem- I, I'm sorry, I don't call that compromise when uh, the Senate, McConnell had the Senate go home for the weekend. Right. He wanted to go home for 10 days. But yeah, I'm, I'm condemning the Democrats for not fighting harder for the people. Okay, okay. Judy, I get where you're coming from. I just, you know, I, I think putting together pieces of legislation that the Republicans will never even take, take a vote on is just an exercise in futility, but I get what you're saying. Judy, thank you for the call. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are, too. I've tried so many bras in the past. And the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes. 
30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Treason and Betrayal, The Rise and Fall of Individual One by Kenneth Ford McCallion. This is from the prologue. It was a gray, overcast day in Washington on January 20th, 2017, the day that Donald J. Trump was sworn in as 45th president of the United States. The weather matched the mood of the majority of Americans who had voted for Hillary Clinton, but whose candidate was denied the election as a result of an anachronistic electoral college system, a lackluster Clinton campaign that had ignored key battleground states such as Michigan and Wisconsin, and of course substantial help from the Russians. But the most significant assault on American democracy did not result from the illegal hacking and cyber attacks by Russian agents on our electoral system and social media. Rather, it came from Donald Trump's full-scale assault on American ideals and values, which had long been this country's most powerful weapon in its arsenal of democracy. In his grim inauguration speech, Trump basically announced the end of American exceptionalism, the hallowed concept and conviction that the United States has a special mission and place in history. Instead of extolling the virtues of our democracy and calling upon its citizens to raise the torch of liberty in every corner of this country and around the world, Trump took the cynical view that the United States was no better or worse than Russia or any other authoritarian country, and that all our government should be doing is to put America first by concentrating on building our country's economic wealth over all other considerations, and by not worrying about other concerns such as human rights or even democratic rights and freedoms around the world. Trump's denouncement of America's commitment to liberty and justice for all was a frontal attack on the guiding principles forming the bedrock of our democracy and America's faith in itself and in its transcendent mission. The Declaration of Independence had been a clarion call that resonated not only on this continent, but around the world, declaring that the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was the cherished goal of all Americans and freedom-loving people the world over. Now, Trump was seeking to extinguish that fire by declaring that America was no longer the beacon of liberty and that every country, especially Russia, should be permitted to do whatever they wanted in their own country and its own sphere of influence. And that if they dismembered neighboring countries or slaughtered their own people who were fighting for greater civil and human rights, that this was of no importance to the United States. In other words, Trump was articulating precisely what Putin and others in the Kremlin wanted to hear, which is that Trump would give them the green light to rebuild the Russian Empire without fear of opposition or retaliation by the U.S. In doing so, Trump was demonstrating that he was a traitor to the traditional American democratic ideals. The enduring concept of American exceptionalism dates back to French writer Alexis de Tocqueville's reflections on America in his 1835 work, Democracy in America, where he concluded, quote, the position of the Americas is therefore quite exceptional and it may be believed that no democratic people will ever be placed in a similar one." End quote. Abraham Lincoln echoed this theme of American uniqueness when he noted in his Gettysburg Address in 1863 that one of the things that sets us apart from all of the countries in history is the sacred duty of the United States to ensure that the government of the people, of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from this earth. Since the end of the Civil War and up until January 20th, 2017, the idea of American exceptionalism has infused the rhetoric of virtually every modern president and political leader. In April 1917, near the end of the First World War, President Woodrow Wilson exhorted Americans to fulfill the country's destiny to make the world safe for democracy. In his State of the Union address in January 1941, when the future of liberal democracies in a world war against fascism hung in the balance, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt sent a message to its besieged Democratic allies around the world, reassuring them that, quote, we Americans are vitally concerned in your defense of freedom. We are putting forth our energies, our resources, and our organizing powers to give you the strength to regain and maintain a free world. This is our purpose and our pledge, end quote. 58 years ago, in his inaugural speech on 19, in January 1961, President John F. Kennedy reminded Americans that it was our country's fun fundamental duty to protect human rights at home and around the world. He pledged that Americans would bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, 
to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Ronald Reagan inspired us with his soaring rhetoric about America being a shining city on the hill, a beacon for freedom, hope, and liberty that was and always will be the model and example for all the world. President Obama, in April 2009, publicly announced, acknowledged America's, quote, extraordinary role in leading the world toward peace and prosperity, end quote, while cautioning that such a lofty goal could only be achieved through effective partnerships with other countries. He also often reminded us that America is, at its core, a good and caring nation that must work tirelessly in the cause of democracy and human rights all around the world. With Trump, this powerful concept of American exceptionalism, which has been enshrined in our nation's psyche for almost 200 years, was declared to be dead and buried, or so Donald Trump and his enablers would like us to believe. In the immortal words of Stephen Colbert, Trump, in his easily forgettable inaugural speech, basically compared America to a dumpster fire. America's longstanding mission to preserve and protect the causes of democracy, freedom, and human rights around the world had, according to Trump, virtually devastated the country. Treason and Betrayal is the book. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you live from Portland. Mark, uh, watching us live on Twitter in D Detroit, Michigan. Hey, Mark, what's up? Uh, hi, how's it going? Good. I just wanted to bring to attention the fact that a hospital system in Livonia, Michigan, has not been taking the proper procedures for um, quarantining patients or and limiting the care that um, patients that are not affected by the coronavirus are receiving, Would including that be testing Mary's? and imaging. Pardon me? Would that be St. Mary's Hospital? St. Mary's Hospital in Livonia, Michigan. Wow, that's where my, uh, that's where my uh, first daughter, my first child was born. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah so they I'm, I'm pretty familiar with that hospital. Were, so so what are they not doing, um, So when we walked into the hospital system, there were no people with masks. Masks were not readily available. There were people that they had said that were coming into their hospital system, getting checked for coronavirus in addition to their normal patient population. So it's not necessarily that they... They weren't doing anything to prevent the spread of coronavirus. They are. In other words, they, they weren't segregating people were, out. I, I'm guessing that's probably the case in all hospitals sitting. in America. We just don't have the, the system for this right now um, because all these hospitals are running on, a, most of them are running on a for profit basis. St. Mary's was a Catholic hospital when we were there back in the 70s, but um, I don't know if they've been acquired or if they still are. But. Um, uh, it's, you know, we've got a really screwed up system here, Mark. And, and Absolutely. Uh, there was I, a girl know. that was in a wheelchair, visibly sick, looked like she had the flu, and a woman was pushing her and just told her to cover her mouth. This woman was forcefully coughing out into um, patient, patient area, a waiting room, and very possible that people could get sick if this woman does have the coronavirus. And when we inquired about... Or even if she has the flu... It's possible, but regardless, this woman is presenting. No, I mean people can get really sick from the flu too. She was apparently, if that was if that was the case. I'm agreeing with you, Mark. My point is that that's bad practice, whether it's the flu or the coronavirus. Thank you for sharing that story with us. I appreciate the call, Richard in Bellevue, Washington. Richard, what's on your mind today? Well, first of all, I want to wish you and Louise, Sean, and all your good health and well-being for your sake, but also for ours. Thanks, and Nate and Joyce and Lise and Sue and Nigel and Dave and everybody. Yeah. You, what you're doing right now is more crucial than uh, than than normal. It's uh, abnormal times. I'd, I'd like to ask you, talk me down from my long-standing paranoid fear about the resident of this White House. Will he use this national emergency declaration to consolidate even more power? Is this going to be a Reichstag, burning of the Reichstag mo moment? I don't think so. I think that may come. And I wouldn't put it past Trump. The, the one good thing about this is that the Congressional Research Service says that Congress can give the president the power to suspend elections, but they have to pass legislation to do that. The Democrats control the House. And so that probably is not going to happen. But that said, most of what this is going to do 
the two main things that I know of that, a, that a, an emergency declaration will do is, number one, it will uh, free up the $40 billion FEMA fund. And so if we need to build, for example, MASH units next door to hospitals where just coronavirus people can be treated, things like that, you know, basically a nationwide Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Maria kind of response, we can do that. And secondly, it'll allow the states to have more access to Medicaid money than they would normally have. It loosens the rules around that so that states can make their own choices about how they need to spend money, Medicaid money, medical money, treat people. So I wouldn't be totally freaked out about it. This is what the Democrats have been begging for 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 two months now. So it's, I think, in, in my opinion, it's a good start. Thanks a lot for the call. Becky in North Berwick, Maine. Hey, Becky, what's on your mind today? Hey, I just wanted to mention that Nancy Pelosi made an announcement that the House was going to pass a coronavirus relief bill that puts families first, including free testing for all. Good. And, and my, uh, no, no, I had, a, I had two quick questions. Do you uh, foresee the Progressive Party splitting from the Democratic Party? And number two, how in the world is Donald Trump's approval rating for his handling of the coronavirus at 43%. Right. With regard to approval, uh, you know, you have to include the roughly 30% of Americans who get most of their news from Fox News and right-wing hate radio, which have been saying, you know, he's wonderful, everything he does is perfect. With regard to the Progressive Caucus splitting off from the Democratic Party, I don't, I don't see that happening. What I see is them taking over the Democratic Party. And in fact, let me just riff on this a little bit. This is from my book, The Crash of 2016, and it's from an article in 1933, March 19, 1933, uh, by Anne McCormick in the New York Times. And she's talking about Franklin Roosevelt. She said, one of the reasons for the present meekness of both houses, they were all going along with FDR and everything he wanted, is that every member is practically buried under avalanches of telegrams and letters from constituents. These messages come to Democrats and Republicans alike, sometimes profane, always imperative. They are mostly variations of a simple order. Support the president, give him anything he wants. Um, She goes on in this piece, Mr. Roosevelt thinks and talks a great deal about government. He believes that at every turning point of history, someone rises up who can enunciate and in a sense personify the new direction of the public mind and will. In his view, America has reached such a crossroads. And the, the New York Times writing about how, you know, Congress just had to go along with this progressive revolution because the people were demanding it because of the crisis of the Great Depression. I think the same thing is going to happen over the next year as a result of the crisis of this coronavirus. I'm actually optimistic long term. I'm concerned short term and none of us want to get sick, but I'm actually very optimistic long term. Thanks so much for being with us today and this week. We'll be back same time, same place. In the meantime, stay healthy, stick, wash your hands a lot, and don't forget democracy requires you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it, and tell your friends how to find progressive media. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.